When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shkulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Svetlana Lavochkina, author of Carbon, Song of Crafts, published by Lost Horse Press in 2020. Svetlana Lavochkina is a Ukrainian-born novelist, poet, and poetry translator, now residing in Leipzig, Germany. Her work has been widely published in the U.S. and Europe, appearing in Agni, New Humanist, Poem, Witness, Straylight, Circumference, Superstition Review, Fairlight Books, Drunken Boat, and elsewhere. Her novella, Dem Duchess, was chosen runner-up in the Paris Literary Prize. Her critically acclaimed uh, debut novel, Zap, was shortlisted for Tibber and Jones Page Turner Prize London and published in German translation by Boland and Quist. Hello, Svetlana. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Natalia. Thanks for having me. So, Carbon is about the Donbass and it's about Donetsk, um, but one will not find a linear chronological narrative. Instead, the writer is invited to enter a mythical place where things do not start, do not end, and they just exist. The world you created in Carbon, and that's how I would describe Carbon, that it's specifically this world that you're creating in this um, book, is multidimensional and multifaceted. This is the Donetsk of the middle of the 20th century with a beautiful story about a mayor who, after his visit to Paris, decided to plant roses in Donetsk. This is a story of the Donetsk as seen by a child, a teenager, and an adult, and this part, if presented as a series, is presented as a series of initiations. Uh, it is a story of the Donetsk that is a place of luxury and poverty. Um, and I say uh, Carbon is a mythical journey because it feels real, and at the same time, uh, it feels like a place constructed only in one's imagination. And to enter that place, the reader has to abandon expectations of what Donetsk is or should be. And of course, the title is quite eloquent carbon, pitch dark where colors arise on their own. So how does one approach a story, carbon? Well, uh, there are several ways to read carbon. On the one hand, as you already noted, it is, well, it is quite a linear narrative. There are dates and there are even like days 
when certain events take place. And if you read page by page, you will be taken through the narrative as if you were reading a novel, which, is, which it actually is. Yet, it is also possible to open the book at any page and read any of the fragments, just cold turkey. And still you will get a meaning out of this. And uh, probably the impression will be different. Yet, um, I conceived of the narrative to be like this because, well, I revere my readers and I am in awe of their time. If they decide to dedicate hours to reading my book, first off, they can drop any moment if they don't <laughs> like it. Um, secondly, if they are sort of diligent, they will go through the novel um, like real time and from the beginning to the end, classical way. And uh, also what I wanted to say is that um, reverence to the reader is also expressed by my um, unwillingness to pussyfoot the reader. I invite them on a journey of discovery, just as I was doing it when I was writing it. I'm not like chewing anything uh, in little, you know, a little brew, a little porridge for, for the readers, because otherwise it will be boring. So I presuppose a lot of intellect with the readers, and this is just what I wanted to do. It is probably a postmodernist approach. I don't know well, exactly how that is one writes intuitively. But, well, you can start and drop as you wish. Or you read everything from the beginning to the end. Um, well, there are basically two lines in the narrative. The first one is the masculine line, Alexander. And he is the minor son who goes through all these initiations. I must say that all these events are totally realistic. I had a prototype who volunteered his biography to me, a Donetsk inhabitant. Uh, he is the best friend of my best college mate, let us say. And he did all that. It is a little bit surrealistic. It's a little bit magically realistic, magically realistic yet... All the events are very real. Okay, well, the, the dog portion is not really very realistic, yet could have happened. Even the plague episodes happened. So it sounds incredible. It sounds uh, OTT, but it is Donetsk. Everything is possible in Donetsk, hence mm -hmm. this impression. And the second line is um, the heroine who is, well, you can roughly say it is my alter ego, but the biography is fictitious. Although such people, such ladies, did exist, they st still exist now. This, it, it might be a very typical biography. Let us see. And then, then they intertwine, and I'm not spoiling what comes next. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, I really appreciate the humbleness with which you talked about your writing that your readers uh, can just read the entire book or they can just drop your book. Um, can I ask you about your journey toward writing, to becoming a writer and to becoming a poet? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, 
I think I have always wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Yet, well, um, as I said, I was born in Zaporizhia, which is midway uh, between, you know, the ex-capital of the ignominious Soviet Union and uh, the Black Sea, deep province at the time I was growing up. It was a big city, a failed industrial giant, and I didn't have a bad childhood at all. I had a very loving family, and um, I was very much protected, so to say, like a Jewish princess in in a way. Yet, um, when a child grows up, a highly sensitive child grows up in a dictatorship or whatever it was that the Soviet Union was, one can't help feeling that all is fake, that the ideals or that it, it is permeated with lies and you cannot help noticing it. And um, as a child, you cannot go anywhere. You cannot emigrate. Emigration was not possible anyway. So I decided to immigrate Italy, and a big assistance for me in that way was going to that specialized English school, English Depth in Learning School. Mm. I was very fortunate to have had an opportunity to go to that school, and English became my fetish and my love and my passion, and I, well, since, whatever, class two, I started dreaming of writing a book in English. Back then, I probably possessed of like 200 vocabulary items. And uh, yet this dream persisted and it took me, well, a couple of decades to write anything at all. And um, it was probably this inner flight and also in a foreign language. You can be as playful as you wish, as arrogant as you wish, as naughty as you wish. Your mommy will not understand what you're going to write. Well, back then, those were my incentives. And, well, it took me a long time to realize, oh, yeah, probably I can't write. I was very self-conscious of all that in the shade of all those giants. Russian literature has never been close to me, I must admit. I grew up on, like, English, American literature, more or less. So I'm sort of free of this influence, probably subconsciously not, but um, on the whole. And then, well, it is a long way, as every writer's way. And you have to first go to this sentient phase where you experience much and you feel and you do nonsense and you suffer, so to say, so to say, the youth sufferings. And then you process all that and then you look back upon your experience and start uh, ruminating upon that and then you start recreating it in your own processed digested way Mm -hmm. roughly speaking that would be it Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned your fascination with English, and there is a fragment in this story in Carbon uh, where the protagonist, or one of the female protagonists, right, um, discovers this um, um, fascination with English as well, and she's an, a, a student in the Department of Foreign Languages. So, and I'm wondering to what extent Carbon is uh, autobiographical. You mentioned that there are some um, 
episodes which are based on your real life, but uh, I'm wondering if those episodes are somehow connected to your own biography. Okay. Well, uh, most of Carbon is not my autobiography, but the biography of my friends, mm -hmm. the real Donetskans, so mm -hmm. to say. I studied in Horlivka, mm -hmm. my young adult life and my like adult self was formed there mostly uh, the only very autobiographical episode is the visit of those uh, Alabama missionaries ah. in <laughs> Orlika, I think it was 1993 1994 they did come to our Institute of Foreign Languages and there their own mission was to convert as many uh, into their Christian faith as possible. They were not malicious at all. Nice people. They had this Christian mission of one of the affiliations. I don't know what exactly that was. And, well, we read Bible, the, the Bible together and we talked about religion. I, was, I had never been interested in religion to that, you know, uh, to that degree and uh, we were really each of us was assigned um, roommate and my roommate was wonderful only you know her labor was lost on me and Jewish I wasn't going to to get converted but a nice friendship um, emerged out of that experience and of course it was very good for English I remember that uh, well the youth hostels you know student hostels they were so horrible <laughs> there in Horlivka and they were so dirty and we had to prepare them for the American American young people to live in and I remember spending like three days washing scouring the floor washing the toilets and making it comfy comfy and getting some rugs and some flowers and still of course you cannot repair what is irreparable and they were still shocked but then they probably perceived it as their ordeal yeah and of course i pulled this um episode of missionaries into the you know into this sarcastic into this uh, grotesque which i inevitably do when i write and this was the real episode all the rest is actual mm -hmm. fiction Apart from the male line, the male line is 60% true, I would say. Mm -hmm. It is only, well, magically realistic or uh, surrealistically processed. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, let me go back uh, to your comments about uh, the language in general and um, there are also some uh, uh, thoughts on uh, bilingualism of your uh, female character uh, mm -hmm. and there are also some comments about accents uh, not mm -hmm. only within the uh, uh, native speakers right but also uh, accents of those who acquire a different language uh, and of course, it leads to this um, uh, topic and to this conversation about language in general. And uh, to me, Carbon can be read as a language play that evokes labyrinths of imagination and the reader is welcome to be lost in an intricate network of multiple paths. So would you share how you see language as an open system that not only sets up rules, but also uh, invites to sabotage them? 
Okay. Um, I basically think that there's only one language, mm -hmm. right? The proto-language, our ancestors, somewhere in India spoke whatever it is, in Sanskrit or any other version of that, and it only spread out. A language is not only immanent to human beings. So our variety is one language. This is, yeah, probably, I'm not alone in saying that. Uh, the protagonist, the female protagonist is um, scepter, well, decalingual, I guess. First, well, she learned a couple of languages and then, well, she, she mastered 10. I cannot boast of having mastered 10 languages. I have like, I'm actively, actively quadrilingual and the rest is passive, probably four more. But this is no um, rarity nowadays. Um, yeah. As for the, as for pushing the limits, acquiring freedom, yeah, language can afford one freedom. And as already said at the beginning, English afforded me the freedom from the USSR. Mm -hmm. I just escaped into it and the different rules according to which language functioned and the very, very different vocabulary was so refreshing. And so you can assume a different personality. It is a controversial with what I already uh, mentioned before in the way that well, there is only one language. Still, there are varieties and you can hide within them. Um, yeah. So um, when writing, when writing, well, when writing, I try to implement this principle of pushing the boundaries. Uh, sometimes I'm told that my English is not natural. It is uh, different. It is um, not what um, English native speaking writers do in their prose or in their poetry. This is my intention because uh, mm -hmm. languages can interpenetrate and um, imagery and the way of thinking and mentality is uh, translatable. So this is probably what I was... What I have been doing all the time. Um, so, when writing, I probably try to create my own variety of language. It's neither English nor is it anything else. Sometimes I translate from English in, into Ukrainian. I translated carbon into Ukrainian myself. And what appeared as a result was not very purely what Ukrainian poets uh, write nowadays or write whatever. So it is a hybrid and this is probably what I am trying to do, merging the border, mer merging the limits, merging, blurring the uh, whatever, the edges and blurring the boundaries, trying to prove that there is only one language and we should not be so conceited as to claim that we um, have mastered 10 or 15. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's really very fascinating because as you were um, speaking about your writing and as I was reading uh, Carbon, uh, all of a sudden I found myself thinking about Nabokov's Pale Fire. 
and not that much about that poem, but about a comment that one was made by one of um, American students, for whom, of course, English is their first language. And they said that while they were reading Pale Fire, they felt a little bit uh, humiliated because they really had to look up a lot of words while reading the um, the poem, and that's kind of um, um, feeling that um, I was experiencing when reading Carbon because I really really felt like I had to uh, look up a lot of words. And what you were just uh, saying about how uh, your works written in English are perceived and um, how you approach the language, um, I don't think that it was by accident that uh, that comparison to Nabokov's Pale Fire came up when I was reading your carbon. There was a time when Nabokov was one of my patron saints. Mm, mm. I must admit his American variety, let us say. And uh, it's not that I particularly adored his fiction, but I found his approach quite fascinating. Probably subconsciously, I it's not even em emulating, it's just the line of how you go about fiction, so to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is this direction, it is this stream of thought. Probably so, because, well, those um, borderline experiences, uh, the semitones of feelings can, at times, only be expressed by very, very specific, by very certain words, which will not uh, be the first or the second vocabulary entry. And... Um, Probably, um, looking back, I might have thought of adding uh, a couple of footnotes to Carbon. I did so. Mm -hmm. I did that for the Ukrainian edition. Mm -hmm. So I had a, I have a dear comrade in arms in uh, <laughs> literature, and he he helped me a little bit by proofreading, by commenting, and he said, "Well, Pani Svetlana." You have to add footnotes mm -hmm. to explain the readers what it is. Um, I didn't want probably, you know, uh, adding a footnote. Sometimes I thought, oh, am I being arrogant? Probably people know it. Sometimes I had to look up certain things and certain, you know, certain uh, phenomena of chemistry, uh, metallurgy. So this prototype of mine uh, is a metallurgical engineering uh, specialist and he explained a lot of um, processes to me. I have no idea of mining, and I had to look all that up. So writing, in a way, is edu well, it's not in a way, it's probably, it is education. Mm -hmm. I educate myself when writing, and I try to give the reader what I have just learned with so much, uh, you know, um, with... Uh, so much fascination and with so much admiration what I, for what I have learned. It's just the uh, desire to share. Um, Probably like this, yeah. And uh, there were a lot of references to history, uh, pre-Soviet, Soviet, and post-Soviet references abound. 
um, there are explicit episodes that encapsulate also the response to the war launched by Russia against Ukraine in 2014. So how do you see history and how do you inscribe history into your work? And um, if, if I may, um, I would like to uh, also add this comment that I really appreciate Carbon in terms of expanding the notion of the Donbass in general and the notion of Donetsk, yeah. because it's not only about Russian propaganda, as right now many may think. So I would really highly encourage everyone to read your uh, book, because it creates this very complex, very fascinating, compelling image of the Donbass, of what the Donbass is. Okay, well, as I already said before, uh, Donetsk, Donbass, the Donbass is the motherland of my adult self. And when I learned, when I knew that Donetsk and Donbass was being annexed and then it was annexed, it was a personal tragedy for me. I just couldn't live on for months. Uh, the events of 2014 were largely overseen by the West. And I tried many a time to raise people's awareness of, you know, what it means that uh, the Russian regime is dangerous and that the Russian regime was dangerous. I already understood in 2007 when I visited my relatives in Moscow and I saw what was already taking place. I don't think that I was so hypersensitive that I perceived the subtle uh, um, shifts in language that base vocabulary acquired uh, some literary norms that, you know, this creature that is now ter terrorizing Ukraine and all of the world already had revealed himself. It was sort of invisible. Everybody was blind. They said, oh, no, he, he's okay. He's okay. I couldn't prove anyone that it is deeply, deeply perverse what is being done. Yeah. So um, the events of 2014 made me refresh contacts, contacts to my uh, college mates and meet new college mates. Uh, not college mates, I'm sorry, uh, meet like new people around the college mates. And this was how Carbon was born. I wrote Carbon because I wanted to ask to pray for Donetsk, uh, which is, was the motherland of my adult self to whatever it is. I'm agnostic. It's not God, but whatever. But keep, keep um, the potential readers fascinated, informed, um, told that Donetsk and Donbass is the lost Atlantis mm -hmm. of Europe, that um, this very, very rich world, this carbon, carbon, which has multiple meanings, carbon is the most widespread element on Earth, and nothing is possible without carbon. Photosynthesis and uh, lots of chemical processes. Nothing will work without carbon. Carbon is a diamond. It well it can you know can turn into a diamond. Carbon can turn into coal to heat uh, whatever 
like to 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 make fire and uh, carbon as uh, this very very tough fabric, which was discovered a couple of years ago, the graphene. So all that is Donetsk, and hence the title carbon. Uh, carbon can also be deadly in the mines for the miners. So it is very 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 polysemantic. This phenomenon and as said it's so full of contrast that when you were reading it you said well it felt mythical it was all real it all happened and all this coarseness and extreme tenderness this is all in one package and i know people from that donetsk they are like this you can hate them you can like love them and it may also be one package you cannot like pull them apart yeah they will always be very very complex and uh, the time of Donetsk blossom, I missed. I left, well, the, the last time I was in Donetsk was 1998. It was pretty much uh, post-Soviet Union still. Yeah, it was still fascinating and nice and the, ro the roses were still there. But the real blossom, the real uh, like Renaissance-like uh, quality to Donetsk was when uh, I wasn't there. And it was related to me by my friends and this is this passage like uh, which goes white bevels of the donbass jam er emerald cut firmly framed in the marriage of rose beds and sulfur drenched in factory buzzers the screech of mine shafts church bells football cheers and the scythian swede by prokofiev if you only saw cat-eyed toddlers on seesaws, so well-fed, the seats crash into the ground. Elegant people stroll on Artem Street, culling their dogs shit into special bags with their gloved hands. Young coxcombs in business attire skim along avenues, in Bluetooth diatribes with Hermes. Nouveau gourmand colliers wield sushi sticks or suck at frog legs, like nobody's business and so on and so forth. So wonderful, rich, um, controversial, but very, very much alive. And this was the Donetsk that was lost. It is just one fragment, but it was well, as said, home to culture, home to happiness, home to vivacity, and it was all lost. Mm -hmm. Now it's mm -hmm. the desert. It was desert in 2014 already, mm -hmm. when people who do not support this regime have to stay there because of their houses and their elderly parents or their pets or uh, the sheer impossibility to rent an apartment somewhere else, you know. So this is the tragedy which persists and has been there for mm -hmm. eight years. Mm -hmm. And it's also hope. This book is, well, at least I, I, I hope it will be my prayers will be heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Yeah. Ziga also captured. Uh, Ziga Virtov uh, also captured that complexity of the Donbass um, mm -hmm. and uh, presented this uh, not just um, I don't know why Russian side became so prominent in all subsequent works uh, in the, uh, for for other uh, film directors, but he really portrayed Donbass as very multilingual and. Um, it echoed with many, many voices, and um, um, I think Carbon um, also gives this sense of 
of uh, complexity and also complexity that should be approached uh, in an appropriate way because as you pointed out uh, somehow it um, was simplified to the Russian narrative only and I'm thinking that this simplification was taking place not only in the late 90s and in uh, uh, 2000s and early 2000s but also during the Soviet era as well but um, it led to this kind of atrocity right that transpired in 2014 so um your narrator who, who's who's your narrator in this story oh as we mentioned there are two protagonists uh, two protagonists uh, line female line and male line uh, but the narrator is the guide and um, um, the, uh, the narrator also lays out a puzzle of stories and at times it feels like the reader is left behind and the narrator indulges in this kaleidoscope of stories and images and bits of information. So how would you describe the narrator in this story? Well, the narrator slips into the personalities of uh, those characters who are currently active. So in the first part, which is Aslan, um, Alex is the protagonist, and everything is told from his perspective. In the second part, which is um, slug, Elisa is the protagonist and she tells the story. And um, basically it stays like this, only sometimes around Lisa there are men who have to deal with her in one way or the other. Her husband speaks to her and will also tell his own little story in a story. Then the perspective, well, we, we see Lisa from uh, the point of view of the men who surround her, in a way. So these are the little slips into uh, minor characters when the perspective changes. Actually, two main perspectives and several little ones. Then in the very last part, which is probably the most difficult to perceive, because it is kind of, you know, Donetsk is raised into heavens, if one believes that. And there is this divine perspective. Um, and Lisa is um, supposed to come from there. And she is the observer and she is omniscient. So the limited narrator, the uh, unre unreliable narrators of the first three chapters give way to the omniscience of uh, this female protagonist who looks at everything from high up. There were a lot of sensual uh, commentaries in the book as well. Food, aroma, sense, sex, visuals. And the protagonists and the readers are put inside a reality that is vibrant on the one hand, but suffocating as well on the other. And there is this desire to get out of it. But at the same time, it's so intriguing that one cannot but stay. And this sensual dimension makes carbon open it's still about Donetsk, and it's still about Donetsk that shapes the individual, and this part is always part of the narrator and the protagonists. And in this regard, the Donetsk that you construct and deliver to the reader is so different from the Donetsk that is probably known 
to many uh, today. Uh, and the Donetsk that is associated with a war zone only. Um, so what part of Donetsk has been lost while the city became exploited by Russian propaganda? And you already mentioned that you left Donetsk long before uh, the invasion uh, took place. And we talked a little bit about those aspects of richness right, and complexity of the Donetsk that... Um, that disappeared uh, as the Russian regime was uh, established there. But uh, I'm specifically, uh, specifically focusing in this uh, question on this sensual sides, uh, on the um, um, colors, right, on the colors, on the aromas that are associated with Donetsk. And I'm sure you probably have some uh, memories from your childhood or from your um, teenage years when uh, the, when Donetsk was somehow uh, depicted in this very sensual way. And, of course, there were a lot of erotic elements in, in carbon. Okay. May I ask when it was that uh, while reading you wanted to leave? What, <laughs> what episode was it or episodes were, 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 they, were there that you said that? You know, oh, oh, oh! That, that's that's not what I meant. Like I was getting uh, tired, but it's it's this is this a kind of network, right? I, I would describe it this way: it's kind of network that sucks you in, and you try to resist of becoming part of it, but you still become become part of this narration. Yeah. Okay. Um, but no, please yeah. don't don't uh, don't interpret my words in this way. Like I just wanted to leave because there was something unpleasant. No, no not I'm at all. Not. I'm just amused. I know that I write in extremes, and well, uh, one of my grails, holy grail, is seeking beauty in the ugly as well. Seeking beauty everywhere and finding it. I mm -hmm. always manage to find it. Um, so there, the, well. The first expats who left the Soviet Union in the 1970s, early 1980s, are reported to have fainted in the supermarkets in the United States or in Western Europe because, uh, because, of, the, uh, because of the multiple colors they mm. saw there. So there were too many colors in the West and in the United States. They were too bright, too pervasive. Our retinas were more schooled in modest varieties in gray and like dark brown and black. And uh, I do not know what it is connected with. When I myself immigrated in 1999, I think I did perceive nature is very very bright flowers very very bright and i indeed well was so satiated with a huge supermarket i well i went into that i i was dizzy yeah i had to leave mm -hmm. probably mm -hmm. probably i proved i proved that story upon myself mm -hmm. so hence i was thinking about this question of uh you know, said, well, probably I enriched the lack of uh, color complexity in the Soviet Union by mm -hmm. adding it verbally. The smells were rich. And of course, the food and uh, whatever else 
there was depicted, and this sensuality uh, would not be strangled. Yeah, people had that, whether with bright colors or not around them. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I know that uh, talking about um, uh, Donetsk and the Donbas right now is traumatic for many uh, who left uh, Ukraine many years ago. Um, but may I ask you about um, uh, your experience after February twenty fourth? Um. We were on a holiday. It was uh, well winter winter vacation. I teach. My husband teaches too, and we use this time to get a rest from you know this work a day. And we went to Turkey as we wont to do almost every year. The sea and the relative relative warmth, but well, war was already hanging in the air. We still didn't want to believe it. We understood that it is coming. My husband kept saying, well, you will not like the truth, but the war is imminent. Yeah, it will come. And we were just counting the days. And um, two days before February the 24th, um, my book, Damn Duchess, came out in German translation. Mm-hmm. It was two days before that. And... Um, because of that, since the onset of war, I have been like contacted continuously to speak about Ukraine, to you know, to say what I think about this or that, and uh, it was n- not the joy of attention. What joy is there to speak about? But I decided, well, if well, so be it. Then I will speak about Ukraine. I will sort of enlighten with my inside of you, the people have no idea. Mm-hmm. I will try to uh, I will try to cause the people to empathize. And uh, if you speak on the radio and many people hear you, and the journalists hear you, who interview you, and the very, very first days, and well, probably the first month was when Europe was looking uh, at the degree of severity the war is taken are we going to help with weapons and i remember it was probably five days into the war and i was speaking on uh, west german radio and they asked me well what can germany do for ukraine and stuff and i said give give them weapons give them heavy weapons they said no 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 no, no this is not what we were asking and mm-hmm. she broke off but it was live and the words seeped through. I do not suppose it was like my words that played any role. I think many people said the same, and I was just a drop in this fountain, but uh, a fountain does consist of drops, and probably this was it. And when we, yeah, when we heard that the tanks came into Ukraine, we were sitting at breakfast, I burst into tears. Um, My sons were sitting with me, and well, they were born in Leipzig. Yeah, mm-hmm. they um, have never been to Ukraine, but uh, they know from our stories that you know what kind of a country it is. And Ukraine, since since I left it, has come quite a long way to becoming European, largely to 
you know, to overcome this patchwork, this those uh, this residue, the Soviet residue, this grayness. Yeah, I visited Ukraine several times, mm-hmm. uh, already being an expat, and I could witness the development. Anyway, it isn't indescribable. Who am I to judge, and who mm-hmm. am I to say uh, I'm? It's difficult for me. It's difficult for people who stay there. It's difficult for forced refugees. I was a refugee by my own will. You know, I wanted to emigrate. Back then, I was curious, and I wanted to experience more. So to say, but those people who love their motherland and who have their vineyards there and who have their wonderful houses there. What do they feel? There um, has been an initiative, and I have been doing some of it on Facebook. I was asked to collect uh, refugee memories for a, for an architectural project by Shigeru Ban, who is the Japanese architect, mm-hmm. the prominent one, who designed paper sanctuaries for refugees at railway stations so that they have some privacy. Um, the specific um, feature of these paper sanctuaries is that they can be assembled in like minutes by three people without any nails, without anything, like paper tubes and um, curtains. And this provides them privacy, provides them dignity. And uh, uh, Shigeru Ban wanted to, um, well, print refugee memories on the walls and put this paper sanctuary on one of the most peopled areas in London, and it appears it will be, that it will be London Bridge Station. And so I have just collected these memories. It is heartrending. Mm-hmm. So the people were given about, I don't know, but it's three sentences to write about what they miss most in their house, in their apartment. And what I read was heartrending for me. How is it uh, for them? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned that Dumb Duchess was just recently published and um, really looking forward to uh, reading this book as well. Um, is there anything that you're currently working on? Uh, yes, there is. Of course, uh, as for all of us, the war has stopped us in our tracks. Yeah, and uh, for many months we were busy with completely different things. They might have been literature-related, but then you would be translating someone's poetry from Ukrainian into English. You would be uh, doing refugee relief. You would be collecting donations, or you would be working at projects like this on paper sanctuaries. It. Um, I cannot say that... Uh, it is impossible, but probably, probably the um, focus was shifted a little bit. I had already started writing a new book, and I ventured into the terrain of prehistory. I wanted to, you know, uh, break loose from the knots of history, mm-hmm. and even the prehistory of. Uh, Homo sapiens. I'm not saying more. You know, it's, uh, it's the old superstition of uh, spilling too much. Then it might not work. Yeah, I am working on a new project. It is slower than uh, 
than I would like, but it is with an easy heart that I prolong my own deadlines. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward, as I mentioned, to uh, reading um, your novella, Dem Duchess, and to familiar- familiarizing myself with all your future work. Well, thank you so much, Svetlana. Thank you so much for this very touching and intimate conversation today. And uh, thank you for your compelling book, uh, Carbon. Um, and um, as I mentioned earlier, I really um, encourage everyone who would like to know more about Ukraine, about the Donbass, about Donetsk, read your book, because it really helps to reconstruct the richness and the complexity of the Donbass. And it really helps to extricate Donbass from this Russian propaganda image as if Don, uh, the, uh, the Donbass and Donetsk are some sort of a foothold of uh, uh, quote-unquote Russian world and uh, Russian general. Um, as I said, it's it, 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 this is one of those books that gives this very magical, as you pointed out, and mythical understanding of the Donbass. It's much more complicated that today, specifically today, uh, many of us think about uh, this, this, this location in Ukraine. And I would say it applies not only to uh, those who live uh, outside Ukraine, but also to those who live in Ukraine, because... Um, the um, understanding of Donbass also um, was kind of transformed since 2014. So again, well, thank you so much for your work. I have to thank you and very, very many thanks for your attention and for your hospitality here. Thank you. Thank you, Svetlana. Uh, today I spoke with Svetlana Lavachkina, author of Carbon Song of Crafts, published by Lost Horse Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, the podcast channel on the New Books Network.